This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. My name is Vivian Langford. Our team tonight is Andy Britt, thanking the podcast. Michaela Stubbs at 3CR and Raul Hernandez at Radio Skid Row. And Salu Babette, who is our most ardent listener. Tonight we'll hear about wildlife rescue and habitat restoration after the 2019-2020 bushfire, which nobody can now doubt was turbocharged by the drought before and the climate change which created it. We zoom in to see Dr. Bronwyn Gould AM and the bush babies that she's kept alive for Sydney Wildlife Alliance. One of them is called Phoenix and you can see his photos before and after her care on the 3CR website for the podcast of this show. Then James Link will tell us about the 600 land care groups affected by fire how they are weeding, replanting, and definitely not logging the bush, which we can think of as a large refugee camp camp for animals who have survived the fire. Part two of the show tonight comes from the Community Broadcasting Association. It's called Out of the Embers, and thanks to its producer, Alice Ann Sara, I wish I could make radio as good as that. And before we start tonight, Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the traditional owners of, of the land on which we're broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and thank them for the land they have cared for through thousands of years. Talking tonight about land care and about restoration of the land and Aboriginal wisdom is much in demand now, as you will hear from all of the guests tonight. We're talking about rising from the embers today. The intense bushfires, drought and exhausted emergency services have not gone out of our minds during the present pandemic. And our first guest is Dr. Bronwyn Gould, AM. She takes in the wild animals that others might just euthanize. It's touch and go, but she gives them a chance And I'm zooming in for a tour of her wildlife intensive care setup at her home. Could I start by asking about young Phoenix? I saw a photo of him when he was rescued after the bushfires. He was only 65 grams and naked. And now he weighs 830 grams and he's furry. What happened? And now he's even bigger than that. That photo must have been old. Little Phoenix is being released this week back into the bushland near where he came from, along with a little buddy he's grown up with. So Phoenix is well over a kilo now. What happened? Little tiny, shiny, closed-eyed Phoenix came into care after his mum had been killed on the road but was also suffering dreadful, dreadful burns. She came out of, out of the fire ground a few days after the fire, as many animals did. And the wonderful vet nurse brought him down, this tiny little half a handful and so he was fed, oh, every three hours, a couple of mils, and then every four hours, and then gradually more and more, and he grew fur, and then he 
more fun, his eyes opened, and he's now a feisty, glorious possum who doesn't want anything to do. The best thing is he doesn't want anything to do with people. So if, if the person who has him in her aviary right now goes to put the food in, he doesn't jump on her, he heads for the food. He's not the slightest bit interested. So he's well and truly done and dusted and ready to go, mm. little mm -hmm. phoenix. You've also got some ringtail ring babies, I think you said to me, whose yes. feet were burned in the hot weather. So how did yes. that happen? And they've gone back too. They're, they're back out in the wild somewhere as ringtail grown-ups. We, we presume that what happens is they walk across hot surfaces like like bitumen or tin roofs after those very, very, very hot days. When it's a succession of hot days and the earth doesn't cool down overnight, little tiny possums are very vulnerable to having their feet burnt, especially in an urban environment where there's so much of it is, is covered. So the little tiny possums were from the, from the urban environment. And mm. a couple of years ago, I had a, a mum possum, the same, who had badly burnt feet after that dreadful... Dreadful January when we had those all of those days of above 40. She took weeks to clean. Well, I'm thinking about you returning some of these animals to the bush. And in the fires, there are a lot of old trees burnt, those huge old trees with their nesting hollows, and they were destroyed. I wonder how can you restore birds to such a forest with uh, not that much nesting potential? Well, you probably can't. You probably have to wait for the birds to populate it. I mean, there are lots of things people can do. I mean, one of the things people can do rather than feel hopeless is if they are trimming a tree that's dangerous on their property and they, lots of people do have to cut down trees because they just do. And those trees are usually really, really old. And you come across hollow bits in them. Well, don't send it away. Don't burn it. You take the, the hollow bit and affix it to another live tree, a healthy tree. And you're creating hollows mm -hmm. for the creatures. I mean, when we, when we, you can also put out bird boxes with possum boxes. That's what we do with these little guys that we send out. They go out with their own box and they go out in their own box, which they can live in or they can vacate depending on what they want to do. The other things you can do, I mean, we, we, we have been, very fortunate that we could afford to do it. We had a very big tree that was dead and we had it we had it turned into a habitat tree for almost the same price as cutting it down. So that the so that the the, the arborists did what they call antlering. So they cut off all oh. the top bits. Yeah. They cut off all the antlers and we oh. live with this amazing tree and then they cut in artificial hollows. Oh. Of all sorts of sizes. We're still waiting, you know, the full lease signs up. But, you know, instead of losing a tree, we've created three or four little houses. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, another topic that comes up in this is heat stress. And I know when we have bushfires, you know, the medical people tell us that heat stress is a silent killer and more people, more people are killed from heat stress-related illness than actual bushfire. And I think that must be the same for animals. And I wonder how people can recognise wild animals who are suffering heat stress. They're usually lethargic and they're panting. They're usually panting or lying around. Basically, they need water. Basically, what mm. people can do is leave out water. And one of the things, if people are in a, an area that abuts bushland, they, uh, if you play with our best friend, Mr Google, you can find ways to make fabulous water feeders out of PVC pipes and attach them to trees. 
and then you only have to fill them up every few days and it's a lovely source of fresh water so that it's, it's the dehydration as well as the heat because the animals yeah. can't get cool. So yeah. I usually try and find a cool spot and hide, but they need the water. Yeah. Water, water, water. yeah. Well, one of my friends, um, she had a flying fox that flew into some netting on her fruit trees mm -hmm. and it was in the heat and she didn't want to touch the flying fox, but she put a beach umbrella over the tree and the fox until she could get some help. But I'm wondering oh, yeah. with the coronavirus, it's made people a lot more aware of bats and wild species being a sort of new danger. At least people talk like that. I don't know about it. What are your thoughts about that? We should let nobody, bats do, can carry a particular virus. It's the lysivirus. It's a lot like rabies. And so members of the public or even wildlife carers who are not vaccinated shouldn't touch them. Shouldn't, even if they're dead, you should notice where they are and do exactly what your friend did, which was put up the umbrella, but don't touch them until somebody who's vaccinated gets there. Yeah, it's, it's, the lysivirus is a very real virus and it's our bats and it's been around for years and we're really aware of it. And all of us that touch bats are properly vaccinated with the, with the rabies vaccine in order to be able to do that uh, safely. But what? more importantly, no fruit nets. Oh. If you're going to net your trees, or your, they're killers. They are just awful. Ah. They kill snakes, they kill bats, they kill all sorts of animals. If you can put your fingers, a couple of fingers through the hole in the mesh, the net is not wildlife friendly. The cheapest net that you can buy at our famous mm. chain hardware <laughs> is not, and it's about $4.99 or $5.99. I want to pull it away every time I'm there is not animal friendly mm. and so you always check because once an animal gets in snakes get in and then try to get out and in the summer there are so many mm. beautiful beautiful pythons and all sorts of wildlife trapped in non-wildlife friendly netting people in the suburbs have it on their apricot trees or i mean everybody thinking of netting their trees needs to ask for wildlife friendly netting yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I didn't know about that. But what about oh, more broad, broadly this thing about, you know, now that so much habitat has been cut down, perhaps more globally, mm. and we've now got this pandemic, the whole world is shut down for a mm. little while because of that. I mean, I, I'm i on the side of the animals and the habitat. I'd want to restore the habitat. One of the reasons I get upset is when people ring and complain that there's possums in their roof. Well, of course there are. And my, my my less than sympathetic response occasionally is, well, they were here first. They were here first and we've taken away their houses. So what you can do, plant native trees, plant low shrubs and, and things that the small birds can get into and escape from. Lock up your cats. Like if you have a pet cat, I understand that, but keep it inside at night time. Cats, cats are killers. Mm. And do as much as you can to establish some sort of habitat around you. That's what people in an urban environment can do. And be really conscious of re-establishing habitat elsewhere. I mean, it's just so hard. Well, climate change has not been front of mind for a lot of people. You know, it has been for me for many years. <laughs> but until the bushfires, young people weren't talking about it that much. But I've been to meetings where they're sobbing, young, very young people. They're really yeah. sobbing because they've heard this idea of one billion animals have died in mm. these recent bushfires, and they were so extensive. Anyone outside Australia has been horrified by the complete extent of the bushfires, and people mm. here are still really 
unable to fathom how big it was. But they say one billion animals died in the latest fires. But I think that's too abstract. And you see one koala suffering on TV, and that's real. But what does it mean to you, this big loss of wildlife? It means that uh, animals are going to take a while to get back to normal. And some of them probably won't. Some of the ones that couldn't escape. It means like a pandemic for humans, only more acute, isn't it? Mm. They've just gone, gone. Mm. And a lot of the bush recovers slowly. Animals do adapt. Some of them we're noticing here on the on the fringe of the country that a lot of birds that would normally not be here are here because we presume their, their place is gone. We, we didn't used to have galahs in this part of Sydney. Now we hear galahs every day. <laughs> There's a, Rosellas here in, instead of just a few, you hear, see flocks of them. A lot of inland birds are coming out. So it's just really sad. It's really <laughs> sad. And the wildlife is resilient, but only so much. And you know, we can't look backwards because mm. it's done. Mm. They're dead. They're mm. injured. All mm. we can do is look forward and hopefully leave enough space for them to live and, and to thrive. Wow. Mm. To finish, I'd like to tell the listeners about my daughter, who from a young age was in Dr Gould's Browdy troop. And she told me one day that they were out somewhere in nature and Dr Gould told them to sit apart and just listen, just tune in to all the life around them. And it stayed with her. She's grown up now and she also does wildlife rescue. And I'd like to know, Bronwyn, you keep some of those animals that can't go back to the wild. They might be blind or something's wrong with them. <laughs> but you keep them alive and you keep them for education. What do they have to teach us? Uh, they're, for, they're for education mostly for people who are training to be wildlife carers and sometimes for community visits. Uh, and they have to be registered. They're really they're strict criteria, but then they have to have been hand-raised. And yet they go out, they, go, they can teach people not to be afraid of animals. They can teach new carers how to handle animals, how to pick them up. Because often when, you, when I did my training, I'd never even touched a possum, let alone picked up a sick possum from, a, from an awful spot in, where it was hiding. So, and it, to create awareness, and to, you know, Small groups like junior guides, we call them now, like junior yeah. guide groups, scout groups, church groups, places to help people understand about our wildlife and not to be afraid of it mm. and respect it because mm. every single life matters. Mm. The, these carers, I, I mean, you're a doctor, so presumably you, you know loads about how to <laughs> save life, but what about these well, No, carers? I only know about one species. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's right. So how do you train people to, to know how to nurture a snake or a kangaroo? I saw a kangaroo once at your place. It was so tiny. It was like, you know. Little... No, that was, that was a possum. Was that a possum? That was a, that was a baby a... brush tail. It looks oh, like a wallaby. I thought it was a yes, kangaroo. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. That, they look like wallabies. Yeah. And, uh, yes. No, no. When, up until they're about two and a half handfuls, they look like yeah. wallabies. Then they, then they suddenly start to look like possums. Yes. <laughs> How do we teach people? We have weekend trainings, a weekend of training, and it covers the whole lot of basics. And then it's almost mentorship. You know, as you take on a new step and a new step and you do specialist courses. If I wanted to do kangaroos or macropods, I'd do the macropod course as an add-on or 
if I was passionate about snakes, I'd do the snake course. Oh, yeah. And, or the koala course or the wombat course. But I've, I've done the possum course and over and above and, and specialising in possums and, and birds, of course. Magpies yeah. are just the most special mm. birds in, in the world to raise. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. So well, you can just teach people with, and with mentorship and everybody teaches somebody. And then as you, as you learn more, you make sure you teach the new ones. <laughs> well, thank you. It's like life. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Thank you. Pleasure, Vivian. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR station appeal starts on Monday, the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. We've heard from Dr Gould about preserving the lives of baby animals who survived the bushfires, but what sort of habitat can they go back to? I spoke next to James Link from Landcare Australia. They've partnered with WIRES, who received many donations during the bushfires that touched people's hearts worldwide. There are over 6,000 grassroots land care groups and 600 of them were affected by the bushfires. So there's a big job to be done in regenerating that land. Here's what they do to replant, weed and preserve wildlife habitat in the face of climate change and extreme disaster. James Link. So we've been uh, very fortunate to, to be working with WIRES. Um, it's a, both organisations have been operating in the space for about 30 years and uh, it's been uh, a great alliance to, to forge basically in, in, the, in the aftermath of these, these fires. Uh, and uh, the relationship has allowed us to fund over a million dollars worth of, of projects in, in bushfire relief and, and drought relief projects. So the, the types of projects, um, we, we made grants available to land care and other environmental groups and networks that are in bushfire affected areas or in, or in drought affected areas. And the types of projects that we were looking to fund were focused on habitat restoration type projects uh, or rejuvenation. Uh, Things like uh, citizen science projects, so allowing local groups to work with their volunteers and their members to get out and survey the impacts in their areas and, and to count the numbers of native animals, for example, that have survived um, in, in particular areas and to, to create some, some good quality data to be able to use that for future management planning purposes. Uh, weed control is a a massive issue um, in a post post bushfire um, scenario, and getting on top of those quickly, it, it provides an opportunity because uh, a lot of times a lot of vegetation is obviously cleared in a, mm. in a bushfire scenario, and so um, it provides a, an opportunity for weeds to come up, but it also provides an opportunity for local environment groups to get in there and tackle those weeds, and if they're enabled to do that quickly. Uh, and effectively straight after a bushfire has come through, then that can have really positive effects for the rejuvenation of that bushland to allow it to, to come back in a, in a more native 
way rather than allowing the exotics to take over, which creates much better habitat values for the local wildlife that has survived and the local wildlife that will re-enter those, those burnt areas as they rejuvenate. I'm thinking about food, you know, for these little, I've just interviewed a doctor about these they, you know, often baby animals. I'm thinking, how are they going to find enough food in this blackened landscape? Admittedly, there's some green shoots, but not the sort of food supply that they would need. Absolutely. There's there's a couple of things about food and, and water um, availability for for the animals that have survived. Uh, there, there's various um, programs and, and land care groups and other wildlife carers that get involved in uh, food drops uh, and Providing the correct type of food is important in that. So um, we did see after the bushfires that a lot of people that were obviously wanting to do the right thing were, were dropping various types of food out into the burnt landscape. And sometimes that was a good thing and other times um, it's not the right type of food and it actually has a more of a detrimental effect. Um, so it's important to work with the local experts in an area to make sure that the the food that is being dropped into those burnt landscapes is suitable. But it's also important to note that that's not really a long-term solution. It's a, it's a bit of a Band-Aid fix for mm. that immediate aftermath. And so one of the really important things is to protect and enhance the bushland that hasn't burnt in, in adjoining areas next to the areas that have burnt. Um, that's where a lot of the wildlife uh, that did survive will have gone to, uh, will have sought refuge in those areas. And so protecting those areas and making sure that they're providing good habitat and a good food source for those native animals is really important. That's, that's what a lot of this work is funding as well. It's not just looking at the rejuvenation of the areas that have burnt. It's also about making sure that the refugia that's nearby is being looked after. Yeah. Well, I once interviewed a bat expert and I showed my total city slicker ignorance by saying to him, well, sort of, what are bats for? And he nearly jumped out of his seat and said, bats are pollinators. And he told me how the bats, you know, pollinate from Queensland right down to Victoria and all these beautiful flowering gums are their work. So I think restoring the wildlife is restoring also that sort of job, isn't it? That work. Absolutely. Yeah, the pollinators is a, um, a big area that needs a lot of work here in Australia and, and, and globally. And um, this, this bushfire event and drought uh, and other, other impacts on, on pollinators um, are, are really uh, have had a significant impact this, this summer. And yeah, works that land care groups are doing in, in their local area to increase pollinator numbers and, and habitat for pollinators, whether it's bats or bees or hummingbirds and, you know, all sorts of different uh, uh, pollinators that are, that are out there. Uh, it's, um, yeah, certainly important to be funding activities and we, we place a high importance on, on that, uh, that land care groups that are working in those, those areas and providing uh, projects that are going to support pollinators. Providing an opportunity for people in a bushfire-affected community or even people that have just been people in, in, in the city you know, have been impacted by this as well 
and providing an opportunity to allow them to be a part of the recovery is is pretty powerful for for people's mental health there's uh, other groups in victoria that are working on habitat restoration wildlife corridors so working with particular farmers and particular landholders to increase the native vegetation in between a, a piece of good quality bushland and a, and a waterway and another part of the farm that might have previously not had any connectivity so providing mm. habitat connectivity projects is a really important yeah. part of what, what Landcare does replanting and getting some native vegetation into the landscape to mm. allow impacted wildlife to use that over time to get to water sources and food sources mm. that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get to. Well, I can see that each local area would have its own priority list of things they want to get on with, and it's great that you've had this boost of money and partnership with WISE. I asked James about some of the activities they do in citizen science and how they learn from Indigenous people in many land care groups. Yeah, have been involved in doing land care activities on, on the farm uh, ever since I was a boy, really. Mm. Now that I live in in the suburbs of, of Melbourne I'm involved in the, the local group in the in the creek that's over the back fence and um, mm-hmm. yeah get it, get involved in various weeding activities on uh, once a month on a Sunday and, and planting activities and also some of the um, the bird surveys that are going on in the um, in the local creek land as well I, I get a lot out of it yeah, there's a lot of people that are involved in in land care that are members of their of their local group and and others and and network yeah i think it's a good way in i've spoken to a lot of indigenous people who say to me you know you have to touch the land you have to lie down on it you have to get your feet into it you know and sort of own it it's where you live it be you belong to it and i really i find that very touching that they say it that way because i think a lot of city people like myself don't you know you don't really have that feeling of being up to your knees in it yeah what you're describing is like fixing up the local creek it sounds modest but it's probably absolutely fascinating what you discover ah absolutely yeah i mean land care has its roots very heavily 30 years ago in in the rural sector and um, farmers and conservationists coming together to i guess deal with the issues that were happening at that time, you might remember there were big dust storms coming over Melbourne in the, the 80s and farmers and conservationists were butting heads as to whose fault it was and who was going to fix the problem. And that was the genesis of land care, farmers and conservationists coming together to start to reverse those issues. But land care has now grown over the last 30 years into something much more than what's what's still happening in rural and regional areas. And mm. it now does exist in the city. And there are many urban land care groups or friends of groups, local environment coalitions, and there are fantastic opportunities for everyone. It might be their local creek or you know, if they're, they're on a beach side, there's a lot of coast care, urban coast care groups mm. that you can get involved with. And as you say, we're, we're very fortunate in the, the land care community to have good relationships with the Indigenous community in many parts of Australia. Learning from their connection to country and the, the benefits that they so eloquently describe mm. when they're talking about how important it is to have connection to country and and to, I guess, be an active part of, of that, it certainly rubs off and it, it makes a lot of sense to yeah. to those that are in the in the land care community. And you can feel it when you when you get out there and, and do this work. It feels good. It gives you a connection to the to the land and it gives you an appreciation for what you're doing and what you what you're experiencing and, and what 
legacy you're providing and um, yeah. it's just a good thing to do. There had been a terrible drought. My garden was empty of flowers, so there were no bees, no cicadas. I resented the wallabies that stole into our orchard and ate every green tip off the fruit trees. After the fire, there was such such a silence and a deficit of bird life. It was eerie. This episode contains stories of animals in distress. This is From the Embers, a series centred on the experiences of nine Australian communities affected by the 2019-2020 bushfires. I'm Sarah Mashman. As fires raged across Australia and houses were threatened and lost, people evacuated from their homes. Alice and Sarah, our New South Wales reporter, was one of those people. Sure, I was worried about my house. I mean, I evacuated it three times over six weeks with two small children. I'd just gotten back from our second evacuation and I was so happy to be home. I missed our beds, our community. And then I checked my phone. I had a missed call from my friend Robin, an RFS firefighter. Maria, where Alice had literally just unpacked her evacuation bags. I just grabbed my mask, the kids, my baby was napping, so I snatched her from the cot as we ran out the door and into the car. It was a totally unexpected fire, and it was a big one. The fire front went over my house, but the RFS saved it. Some of my friends weren't so lucky. I lived up until New Year's Eve in Ridge Avenue on the south coast of New South Wales. Nick Hopkins lived on a small bush block on the side of a ridge. So we're just passing now two houses that were completely destroyed as the fire moved very, very quickly through here on the morning of New Year's Eve. Just turn left in here. We can just park here. What we're looking at now is a whole series of brick piers on which our house was constructed. Honestly, if you were to drop a one megaton bomb on this house site, it wouldn't have done a better job than what this fire has done. The debris is probably about a metre thick in some places. And I can recognise various bits and pieces of my previous life. Over there we've got the range hood from the stove, we've got the washing machine just lying here. Every single tile that was on the roof has come down and smashed on the ground here. Into hundreds of thousands of pieces. This is a broken tile. Would you like to come into my workshop? It's a massive, twisted 
metal, the roof's half caved in. I can only ever be in here for about a minute or two at a time. The fact that it now looks like this is such a kick in the guts, it's quite hard to describe. To stay here is to begin to drown in those feelings. So I think we should probably leave the workshop now and go out into the open air. I can breathe a bit more easily. I'm looking at the regenerating limbs of the trees on our land and that fills me with hope that the bush has quite a degree of resilience that we don't credit it with. We sat in the car looking down at the pile of rubble that had been Nick's house. We knew that it was indefensible and that we should just get out. And by 8 o'clock that morning, we'd evacuated down to the beach at Malua Bay. And we watched the smoke get thicker and thicker. And there was a sickening feeling that some of that smoke would have been coming from our house. And we came back and we saw, oh, that house survived, or that one didn't. And as we came in our driveway, we could see the flames still burning on our house. And we knew that ours was one of the unlucky ones. I was aware that it wasn't just my home and my neighbours' homes that were potentially going up in smoke. It was the habitats of all these critters. Scientists say the figure of a billion animals dying during these fires is conservative. If we count invertebrates like spiders and bees, it's more likely 240 billion. I can't believe it's just too big for the human brain to comprehend that kind of figure and the amount of suffering that that equates to. What about all the native animals that are caught up in a major wildfire, like if they're macropods and they're hopping to get away and they're hopping the wrong direction? What if it's travelling so fast that you can only get away by flying? So you've got wings and you can fly away. Well, good luck because... You've got to choose the right direction to fly in for a start, but wherever you land is going to be already colonised by other members of your species. So it definitely was front and centre of my mind at the time, which made it so much more distressing. The animals that survive the fires can't just move into the nearest tree or make their home in a pre-existing burrow. And they can't go back to their patch until the scorched earth regenerates. They live in sacks uh, that I hang up, suspended across a rope. Different joeys like different teats. One of mine sucks much faster than the other. I'm just going to go back to the microwave and see how this bottle is defrosting. with both hands, holds the bottle with hands, and this one always holds with one hand. Julie Taylor-Mills bottle feeds joeys around the clock. Of all the animals that I've cared for, the kangaroos are the ones, even more so than wallabies, you have them for longer, you get to know them better, so you actually get quite attached to them, in a sense of getting to know their personalities. She's a volunteer with the New South Wales Wildlife Information, Rescue and Education Service 
you might know them as wires. I had 11 animals in care, three ringtails, one brush tail, two swamp wallabies, two redneck wallabies and three little eastern grey joeys. And then I've got this bushfire crisis. When on the ABC radio it went to a message saying, if you live between Maruya and Churos Heads, take cover as the fire front goes over, it's too late to leave, then I just went cold. Julie released the wallabies out the gate. She strung a rope for the brush-tailed possum and then she loaded up her five-door sedan to drive to the nearby headland. With three joey bags, and I had a box full of the ringtail possums, and I shrouded it in a rug and put that in the back of the car. So the joey sacks hang over the, the headrests into the back. I put the car down on the point with the joeys and the possums in it, and my next-door neighbour didn't turn up, so I got on the bicycle and went down, and his son-in-law's appeared. We spent the next six hours fighting the fires there because the wind kept fluking, then it'd go another way. And actually, it was a really empowering experience. It was I didn't think I'd ever end up fighting a fire, and then I went back and fed the joeys. <laughs> they were all just hanging out in the car, just sitting there. I'd left the windows open, don't worry, and I'd left the, the vent over the top open. Julie has specifically designed enclosures for the wildlife that come into her care. As for how they get there, it usually starts with a phone call. Before the bushfires, we'd have three or four calls a day for our region, and maybe one of them might be a kangaroo. If it's a kangaroo, it's usually early in the morning, someone's hit it, and that's when they come in, the kangaroo calls. Then birds during the day, maybe a turtle or a a ringtail or a goanna. In the height of the bushfires, we were getting... 15 to 20 calls a day, almost exclusively macropods. That's kangaroos and wallabies. They're wild animals and they've got burns. Those burns need to be bandaged and you have to sedate the animal in order to bandage them because they're big, solid animals that are quite strong. What disturbs me more than dealing with the macropods is the fact that that's all we were getting. All the other animals, we weren't getting them in. And yet they can't fly to escape. They can't run like kangaroos. So where were they? They're just gone. So all the possums, the gliders, the who knows what happened to the wombats, echidnas, lizards, snakes. And we eventually accepted that in the few weeks after the fires, there were animals that we could maybe help. Then the animals after that would have infections if they had burns. They'd come back to where they foraged and they'd come in contact with charcoal and burning pieces and then that infection had set in. There was no hope for them after that. There's a vitally important role carried out by a small number of WISE volunteers. Shooters. They're called in to euthanise animals that cannot recover. And during the bushfires... They were finding it really, really hard. They didn't join WISE to shoot animals, but that's what they were finding that they had to do. WISE and fires. WISE and fires is what I want to do now. But I knew that one day the two would converge, and that was January and February. Rachel McInnes is an RFS senior deputy captain, and for many years she's done in-house care for injured birds and rescues animals like lizards, snakes and joeys. I started with wires because I was seeing a lot of kangaroos that had been hit on the side of the road. At Potato Point, we're only one road in and out from the highway, and it's nine kilometres of bush. One day I saw one that was still alive, and then I realised I need to be able to do something to help. And I've always loved animals anyway. I'd always just been a little bit worried about, well, what could I do? Could I do something? 
Through WISE, you learn how to do first aid. After I joined, one of the first things I did come across was a kangaroo that had been hit by a vehicle and it had a joey. And I thought, aha, I know what to do now. So after doing the WISE course, I learned how to extract a joey and I was able to take that joey and uh, straight down to a carer and to get it looked at. She's also a shooter. I knew straight after the fires there would be that time when we were starting to get calls in to euthanise the animals here and rescue, but mostly euthanising after a fire. Before becoming a wise shooter, Rachel had never shot a living creature. She'd only fired at targets on a rifle range. In the 80s, I was in Alice Springs working for some lovely employers and they said, well, this is what we do on the weekends. We go out to a shooting range and we just shoot targets. And so for two years, that's what I did, knowing that I never I never wanted to shoot an animal that was just about target shooting and I was actually not too bad at it. So fast forward, I thought, okay, I can draw on that experience and I can put that skill to use. So I had to go through a lot of training. Wires don't take this lightly and I certainly do not take it lightly I started doing it because I saw so many I saw the need as I'm approaching I always talk to them I always apologize for what I'm going to do it's a headshot I do it as quickly as I can and as accurately as I can I stay with them until I know that they're dead Then I go through the process of checking whether it's male or female. If she's got a joey, I'll extract the joey and get it into a little pouch, keep it warm and get it to a carer as soon as possible. Rachel remembers her worst day during the recent fires. An inferno had gone through a week before. The calls started coming. The first day was just awful. So as I was walking through to euthanise the kangaroos with burnt feet, there was nothing on the ground. There was no green whatsoever. The kangaroos, they would be trying to stay ahead of the fire, but if they're disoriented, they're going to go bounding back through burnt ground. And the thing about the burnt ground is you can't see that it's burnt. It, It looks all right, but... It's hot to the touch, and they might not realise that until they've already started bounding through. It doesn't take much for their feet to burn, and it doesn't just stop burning. They can't move. They certainly can't find any food. They're quite often on their own because they can't keep up with the mob. I did 12 in one day. And the very last one I went to was a big female. She was really struggling. And I saw her stand up and I thought, oh, my goodness, she's got a joey. Before I euthanized her, I promised that I would take her joey and I would find a carer. So that's what I did. I called one of our joey carers and I delivered this beautiful little bundle named Strawberry. She's going to grow up to be a big girl. There were only three shooters working across 150 kilometres of the far south coast. It was just very, very difficult. I asked for help. I had enough of crying. It was just starting to really, really get to me. 
Rachel knew that it had to be done. It just couldn't be done quick enough. At the height of the bushfires, we had a team that came down from Wise in Sydney and they were there to help us because our rescuers, who were licensed shooters, just couldn't cope. And for some wildlife volunteers, only someone who has been there can understand. I've been a rescuer. I've been a carer. I know how heartbreaking it is when animals die. Frances Carlton was in the middle of setting up a new pro bono counselling service, Wild Talk, specifically for wildlife carers. When the fires hit in southern New South Wales, she turned her phone off for a brief holiday. I was planning on finishing a quilt (laughs) in that time. But on Boxing Day, when she turned her phone back on... I had six calls... I woke up the next morning and I had another five calls and then I had another seven calls and I had another four calls. And by the time I got to sort of a couple of days before New Year's, I went, I'm going to have to launch Wild Talk early. Uh, But basically, I just went, fuck, (laughs) this is bad. It was literally people howling down the phone at me and expressing complete hopelessness. And they were describing some of the most horrific scenes you could possibly imagine. I had people describe doing black walk. Black walk is when they go in to a burnt out area. They're looking for animals and they're finding hundreds of dead animals, but they're also finding lots of animals that are so far gone they need to be euthanized and they have to do it as quickly and painlessly as possible. And they can't always do it themselves. And then, of course, there's also the fact that a lot of them had to wait days if not weeks before they were allowed into the areas to search for animals because of other dangers yeah other dangers you know the fact that the grounds were so hot still that they you know could spontaneously ignite again i mean people are hearing noises from animals that they don't normally hear which is only created by extreme pain it's koalas it's kangaroos it's lizards it's everything has been making noises that people don't normally hear suddenly these animals are really sort of earning that sentient label because so many people have suddenly been going, oh, my God, what about the wildlife? And so many people, including me, wanted to be a part, to help in some way. A couple of very high-profile people like Ellen DeGeneres and Obama saw the WISE website and they started tweeting that this is the organisation to help assist Australia's wildlife. I love Australia and right now Australia needs our help. Wildfires have been burning, animals have been killed. It's unbelievable. Nearly a third of their habitat has been destroyed. We're setting up a GoFundMe page to help the firefighters, the people, the animals of Australia. There are people out there who've lost their lives trying to save homes, the people have lost their lives and their homes. And last year's the plight of the animals and loss of their habitat that frankly is on a biblical scale of heartbreaking. Therefore tonight, I will be pledging $1 million. Wise received a huge number of donations, both nationally and internationally. I mean, I did untold number of international media interviews and donations to WISE in this last few months have been phenomenal. In many ways, the international community values our wildlife more than we do. But these bushfires have made us realise that these species may not always be there. And people who couldn't donate money donated their time or their sewing skills. 
We've seen a huge turnaround in the amount of people that have volunteered for organisations. People sewing pouches, people making koala mittens, people donating animal food. People care for wildlife because they care. It's an honour to be in a position where I can help these animals. I just wish that I'd started a long time ago. I could have helped save a lot more than what I have. I even do snakes now. I never, ever, ever thought that I would handle a snake, but I do it because it's another animal that needs... They don't need rescuing so much as relocations. I'm not so keen on doing it, but I will do it. Wildlife has always been one of Andrew White's main concerns. He's a project manager at Batemans Bay Aboriginal Land Council. But when the fires hit down here... I was up with my partner on on her country, Jeringer country, so that's just east of Nowra. And there was fires there as well, so we were, we were caught in that up there and we could not do nothing, you know. It was, it was heartbreaking. Um, the day I came back down, um, yeah, it sort of brings tears to me now. It's just... Yeah, it's really hard. The pain that all the animals went through, our land went through, it was just, yeah, it really killed me. I couldn't do nothing, you know, and and all that hard work we put into trying to save these species and look after our country, it's sort of like, well, um, where do we go now? What do we do? Have we got anything left to look forward to to try and save and not just the fauna, but the flora as well. We're the custodians. We should be looking after the land properly and correctly. And we're that crucial link as custodians. And, and that link has been broken from us. And that was the most heartbreaking thing is that the spiritual connection is really strong. I go out in the bush and I see our big trees as my family and all the animals as my family. And to see them go through that, it's just heartbreaking. Andrew's been looking after endangered wildlife for a long time. He draws on tens of thousands of years of knowledge in his work on far south coast Yuan country. Well, the first day I got back, actually, I went out back out on country straight away and tried to assess the devastation. And instead of feeding and looking after certain animals, we were looking after what we thought was important, like ants and our pollinators, our native bees and our frogs and our insects. To me, a kangaroo, he can hop two kilometres to get a feed, but a, a small little frog or a an ant or a native bee, they can't get help from anywhere else, so we look after them because they look after us. When we first started putting out water stations and things like molasses and stuff to draw in insects, you know, that's the spark of life there. So our little pollinators and our ants, and to see them there, it was really heartwarming. All of us had a smile on our face. Well, that stoked. In turn from that, every time we came out there, that cycle was building, so we'd find different things, bigger things coming in from what we've started from something small. We just went to our ground roots on how to look after country. Everyone feels a part of this now because of the bushfires. Find something special and look after that, and then that'll open your eyes to that broader picture of what it all means to be connected to country, you know. And that's only a small part of it, but that's really a crucial part. Finding that something small, relate yourself to that, let it grow... The animals that we live in amongst don't pose any of those existential threats to us. They just coexist, and I know that because here I coexist with wallabies, kangaroos, untold birds and possums. 
So they raid my veggie garden occasionally. Well, I put a net over it and it's sorted. I don't have cats. I don't have dogs. And I try, really try not to drive ever at dusk or dawn. But I've realised that I'm quite different to a lot of people. And maybe it's that which we take for granted. It's always there. We always assume it's going to be there. After the fire, there was such such a silence and a deficit of bird life it was it was eerie and one time I was up here and all of a sudden some kookaburras started laughing and that was such a great sound to hear finally that some birds had decided that they could come back and we've seen some black cockatoos we've seen a, an echidna wandering through which was quite a thrill I've been telling people this a lot. Go out in the bush or go out in the paddock, be it daytime or nighttime, listen, listen to the country, listen to the bush, and something will catch your ear or catch your eye. It's about finding that or capturing what's there that's really, you know, it's got that connection with you in a way that you feel like you need to do something about it or need to be a part of. First, I heard the insects come back. And then, in the ferns by my front door, I think they're leaf green tree frogs. I'm trying to change my language. Rather than possums live on my property, I now say I share this home with frogs, with wallabies, with ruse and with possums because unless I actually have a relationship with these animals I won't care enough to protect them and their home You've been listening to From the Embers This series has been brought to you by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia and is supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas and the Paul Ramsey Foundation. Our guests were Nick Hopkins, Julie Taylor-Mills, Rachel McInnes, Francis Carlton and Andrew White. Thank you to the WISE volunteers and all the wildlife rescuers across Australia. Special thanks to Anna Grakanen and Monica Nippler. PhD candidates in spotted tail quolls and to the Eurobazella community. The producer was Alice Ansara. That's the beauty about joeys, much easier than little children. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I had little children and it was very stressful in those fires. Engineering by Tegan Nichols. Script consultation from Zoe Ferguson and the theme composer was Oliver Beard. And the executive producer was Sarah Mashman. This podcast was made on the land of the Wabunja people of the Yuan Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. These lands were never ceded. Thanks tonight to Andy, Michaela, and Raoul 
My name is Vivian Langford. Our guests tonight were Dr. Gould A.M. and James Link, plus From the Embers by Alice Ansara, care of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please donate to the station appeal now. We bring you the voices of community groups, such as tonight you heard about land care, wires, and Sydney Wildlife Rescue. You, uh, <clears throat> this sort of media, our sort of community media, gives hope and connection. So please donate by going to the 3CR website, where there's a donate button, or sending a cheque to 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. And now for some action. So what's on this week? Melbourne listeners, here's an event you can get involved with. So grab your pen and paper and write the details down. Extinction Rebellion is calling on you on Saturday the 20th of June, just five days away. And here's an Extinction Rebellion member to tell us about it. Over to you, Brad. Uh, thank you, Vivian. My name's Brad Homewood, spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. And on the 20th of June, on a Saturday, Extinction Rebellion will be hitting the streets again in a COVID-safe action and a deliberate and open act of rebellion and disruption against corruption. We're asking people to visit the website at takepledge.earth and join us. Only rebellion can create the momentum for change. Okay, thank you, Brad. Now, I read on your website is something about a bike action and something about swarming and another one to do with art. So I don't think they're all things that people could get arrested for, are they? I think there are some things that people can participate in. Yes, look, there are three main actions on the day, and you're right, there are various levels of disruption, and it's safe to say that the arts installation, there's no disruption involved there at all. It's very safe for people who are not experienced with civil disobedience. It's a great entry-level action to get involved with. There's also the bike action. is a small step up from the arts installation. And then there's the blocking of the traffic, which is, a, is another step up again. Uh, they're all relatively mild acts of civil disobedience. But people can go to the, go to the website, take the pledge.earth. They can have a look for themselves, decide what they're most comfortable with and get involved. Ah! 